Hi, this is Rich Byrne, AANS Annual Meeting Chair. Just like to encourage everybody to come and join us in Orlando in August for the annual meeting. We're looking forward to seeing you there. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, we continue our mini-series on the subspecialties of neurosurgery, interviewing the respective uh, AANS CNS section chairs. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Shermer. Dr. Shermer is the incoming CV or cerebrovascular section chair. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So, Clemens, why don't you introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your title and uh, where you are now and what you do. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Um, and uh, I am at Geisinger, uh, which is an integrated health uh, system uh, with uh, all sorts of academic um, uh, parts in uh, Pennsylvania. And I'm a professor and vice chair in the Department of Neurosurgery and also function as the residency program director for neurosurgery, as well as uh, when it comes to vascular things, the CAST endovascular fellowship program director. Wow, Dr. Shermer, you wear uh, so many hats there at home in your own program, and here we are talking about yet another position that you hold outside of your home program, or, or you will soon hold as the uh, rising leader of the cerebrovascular section. Maybe in that light, could you tell us and our listeners a little bit about the section, what are its main functions, and what do you offer members? Thank you, John. This is uh, really important to me and uh, has been for a number of years. I think it is uh, one of our most noble, I guess, functions um, to really uh, support our members and make the profession better for all of us. Um, and the sections really go after this uh, in a very specific and focused manner uh, that is disease-specific or uh, specialty-specific because some of the issues are different between, for example, the spinal neurosurgeons and the vascular neurosurgeons. Um, really trying to represent them uh, and, uh, again, uh, looking forward to uh, supporting everyone's needs, uh, supporting uh, what we do, uh, and also maybe getting a little bit of recognition for the good work that we do, which is sometimes an issue um, when we look at uh, what our uh, daily jobs are in the public eye. So, Clemens, I think the first section meeting I ever went to was the CV section, and I want to say it was like 1998 or something like that, and it was in Orlando, and I remember that it was in cooperation with the, a uh, the American Heart Association, the AHA, right? And it was one of the stroke conferences, so I guess because CV plays in such a big field with cerebrovascular, can you tell us about how your section is sort of reaching out and connected to, to folks outside of neurosurgery? Yeah, we're really, I guess, part of a almost like a really matrixed uh, organization um, that, uh, or a, a matrix of organizations, I should say, that really concerns itself with cardiovascular health and stroke in particular. 
And also, as you uh, know, we had some significant and, uh, you know, earth-shattering almost changes in the stroke care uh, of our patients uh, that happened in the last, uh, I would say, half decade. Um, you know, the, the way we treat stroke nowadays is very, very different than what you may have remembered um, from 1998. Um, you know, I would go as far as saying that if you had stuck around, you uh, may have uh, uh, become a vascular neurosurgeon um, because it is, uh, you know, very, very cool and, and probably one of the most beneficial fields for our patients. But there's also a lot of stakeholders um, and uh, a lot of uh, these organizations are trying to work into the same direction, but come from slightly different angles, uh, uh, different specialties. So we in particular, for example, partner a lot and, and try and work together with our neurology colleagues who have gone into the interventional route or the endovascular route, as well as our radiology colleagues who have been in this field for uh, usually much longer than uh, our neurosurgical colleagues uh, when it comes to interventional neuroradiology. Um, and together, we're really trying to move uh, the interventional part of uh, vascular neurosurgery or endovascular neurosurgery forward. And then we interact with our colleagues who are um, more concerned with the medical side of things, uh, with the uh, pre and post acute uh, side of things. Because as you also know, stroke is not just an acute problem. Uh, once you get to the hospital with your stroke, we sort of lost on the uh, prevention front already. And we're still facing a significant amount of work uh, when it comes to both prevention and also the post-acute care. Um, so there's lots of opportunities and, and lots of things to do. And that's where a lot of these organizations are after to change. You know, Dr. Shermer, you talk about not only how rewarding the field of cerebrovascular is, but how cool it can be. And to a young person like me, cool often means gadgets and fancy toys. And, you know, I used to hear one of your spine-oriented partners, uh, Dr. John Slotkin, talk about all the AI research going on at Geisinger. And uh, here, was I, when I was preparing for this episode, I see that you're about to host a digital summit on machine learning and AI in healthcare. So I wonder if for our listeners today, you can talk about some of the roles of AI and new technologies. I often hear about new robotic systems in endovascular and how the CV section brings these new technologies and these new ways of thinking to its members. Um, it can mean a whole different uh, number of things to different people. Um, and fundamentally speaking, it is a tool. Um, and it is a tool just like we had uh, linear regression when we were much younger and we were doing this with pencil and paper. Um, and it is a tool just like we use uh, Microsoft Excel sometimes, I suppose. Uh, what is different, though, is that it does allow us to go after questions that are otherwise not feasible to be answered in the typical or usual, usual way of, of thinking about them. Um, and it allows us to wrap our heads around uh, large questions that really benefit our, question, uh, our patients. Um, and, uh, you know, what we do, for example, in particular, and this is one of it's like my research interests, is that we want to go upstream and look at the prevention uh, effort um, that we can do and, and use those types of tools, AI and machine learning, to 
do precision medicine essentially and and find the the right intervention for the right person at the right time uh, and make a difference for them. Um, so in that sense, uh, we're just going with the times here. Um, and I, th I think it is really important for a lot of us um, to at least understand the basics of how you can leverage these tools and how you can employ them. You don't necessarily have to do all of this by yourself, um, nor would you have to do any of this uh, with any of the other techniques that we use? Uh, but it is important to understand the, the the potential and the limitations of these techniques so that you can partner with people who potentially can help you with that or who do that by themselves who are lacking the clinical domain expertise to uh, formulate the right questions and then to try and answer those right questions, which is really the main value that we as clinicians bring to the table because we see those patients every day. We understand what the problem points and the pain points really are that need to be answered. Um, and some of the people who are very facile with the technical side of these techniques don't understand that as well as we do. And I think it is really also a journey towards more and more collaboration efforts in that sense. And, uh, you know, summits like you're talking and referencing uh, are uh, really, you know, an outgrowth of that, that it has to be a very collaborative effort because it is almost impossible for a single person to do all this by themselves anymore. So Clemens, I, I seem to remember that stroke used to be the number three cause of death and maybe it's changed a bit, but it's certainly in the top five still, right? So you guys as, as CV surgeons, cerebrovascular surgeons, are in contact with one of the most common causes of death in America, right? How do you see maybe the role of neurosurgeons in this space continuing to change? I know it's changed a lot since, since 1998, but going forward, do you see a lot of exciting new ways where neurosurgeons are going to intervene uh, in, in this space? I, I do, and I think there's a lot of uh, different direction that we can uh, go into here. Um, I think for one, uh, we do bring the technical expertise to the table to treat stroke in a very comprehensive manner. Uh, when you and I trained and, you know, you're a tiny bit older than me, but uh, same argument applies, neurosurgeons didn't really treat or concern themselves with stroke in a, in a detailed manner. There were some touch points around decompressive craniectomies, for example, um, and obviously about uh, intracerebral hemorrhages. Uh, and since then, we really tried to move the needle and tried to move that standard of care uh, and, and elevate it um, because Mechanical thrombectomy really has been the most beneficial intervention that we found in medicine probably for a while, um, maybe ever since penicillin or something like that. Um, so from that perspective, uh, being in this field is really, really, uh, I guess, rewarding. Uh, you see the wards every day when you change the lives of your patients, uh, hopefully for the better. Um, and then also when you look at that outgrowth of like how far we have come even in five years. And like I said, now we're exploring, you know, if you have populations that benefit from this intervention more specifically that were not considered a couple of years ago. But we're also looking at post-acute care at rehabilitation using virtual reality, for example, uh, looking at biomarkers of stroke, trying to predict when you're going to have your stroke, trying to predict when you're going to, I guess, uh, benefit from certain interventions, um, as well as uh, something that for neurosurgeons has always been something on our minds uh, for the last several decades. The removal of intracerebral hemorrhages, for example, again, is being looked 
at and is being looked at through the lens of minimally invasive methods. Um, and this really comes full circle to uh, what John was asking earlier about the technology involved in this field is so tremendous um, that it is really one of the most exciting fields that I can think of. And I love to be in it uh, every day. And I, I, you know, will continue to love it going forward, I think. You know, I'm in my second year of training myself, and I have so many friends uh, at my own level who are further down the path than myself, or even in medical school who already have a passion for this field as well. And I wonder what role for participation in meetings, in year-round functions within the CV section is there for uh, young people who are not yet practicing neurosurgeons, but who have a passion like yours and want to participate in this subsection within neurosurgery. Yeah, for one, become a member. That's the the one plug. Um, you know, that's easy. Um, and then reach out. Um, tell us who you are. Tell us who you want to work with. And we have members all over the world, um, if, if that needs to be, but certainly across the U.S., and, um, you know, we will get in touch with the, you know, people that are close to you and, and see what we can do for you there. Um, it is really about uh, finding the right mentors uh, oftentimes. And I think when I look at my career, uh, it could have gone into a different direction. Um, and it certainly would have been, uh, you know, very uh, rewarding. Uh, but I really credit uh, the mentors that I had in this field for pushing me, uh, you know, almost to like embrace this, but also showing me the potential. And this is going back now 20 years, um, showing me the potential of this field. And they've been absolutely right about this. Um, and uh, it, it's been from that perspective, uh, a journey that, you know, I would definitely, uh, I guess, uh, you know, suggest to anyone who's interested in, 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 in embarking and we will support you there all the way. So Clemens, tell us a little bit about this divide and it's, it's a sort of an artificial one between the endovascular and open vascular. There's a lot of discussion. People say I do open and endo or I specialize in one or the other. Tell us about how they differ and how they're similar and, and what people could think about in terms of how they manage pathologies. Um, I think there are, uh, just by the way, this has been so like going along, uh, most of the people that are a little bit younger have dual training, meaning that they spent time both on the open side, but then also did a dedicated uh, training uh, in the endovascular techniques, um, oftentimes a fellowship. Uh, we have tried really hard as a, a vascular section, but also as organized neurosurgery to influence this in a positive way and put the training standards um, onto a uh, level that is acceptable to everyone. Um, and uh, the CAST, uh, the Committee for Advanced Subspecialty Training, um, uh, the CAST committee has training standards for both the open and the endovascular uh, a training paradigm um, and the endovascular paradigm is obviously open to not just neurosurgeons, but it is also open to radiologists and neurologists. Um, so I think the main difference between those two areas is really that as a neurosurgeon, if so, uh, if you want to, and if you have the right training and the right practice, you can do both, uh, which is really rewarding because it allows you to provide comprehensive patient care. Uh, but you can also choose to do one or the other, if you will, uh, and uh, you will then mostly rely on partners who will complement this in a team-based, truly team-based practice. 
And those partners on the endovascular side can then either be neurosurgeons or they can be radiologists or neurologists. And really, from a, a functional perspective, um, there has been a, a true convergence um, in the sense of that the care that is provided by these teams that are highly functioning in, in most of all the places that I know um, is, is really excellent um, and speaks to the system of care that we have developed just like we have a system of uh, accreditation for the stroke centers itself, for example, that we are after in most places, um, that ra raises the level of care that is provided to our patients. It is very interesting to consider, as you pointed out, the growing trend of dual-trained neurosurgeons who perform both open and endovascular uh, neurosurgical procedures. Obviously, in the past few years and decades, as endovascular procedures have entered the domain of neurosurgical practice, there's logically an uptick in the number of neurosurgeons who offer those procedures. But I wonder with your view of the field today and where it's heading, do you see a continued rise in the number of neurosurgeons who will have endovascular training? And perhaps if that trend continues, where do you think on average that divide will fall within a given vascular surgeon's uh, practice? Do you think most people will tend towards endovascular with occasional open practice or, or what ratio do you think we'll see? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think that is a lot of times a function of your personal choices and preferences, but it is also a function of your practice um, that you eventually end up in. Uh, because not all of those are the same, and your practice may vary, very, I guess, significantly from the paradigm that you had or w were exposed to when you were training, both in residency or then also um, in fellowship. Um, so I think it's, it's difficult to generalize this too much. Um, I do think that uh, there will be more often than not in the future, uh, people who want to deal with vascular neurosurgery will pursue training in both of these. Once you're done with training, I think uh, the rest will develop uh, over time uh, because also not everyone enjoys both of these the same way um, and nor do you have to. Uh, and really it comes down to that as a team uh, staffing or covering a certain uh, practice or center, you need to be able to address all of these issues. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that every single one of us has to uh, address all of these uh, techniques in the same way. So, Clemens, I'm reminded of one of our earlier recordings with Adam Arthur from uh, Sims Murphy and uh, talking about, you know, how important endovascular, uh, if you will, the, the, the uh, thromboembolic treatments are. And uh, thrombectomies really, you know, have like a Lazarus effect in certain cases, really amazing, uh, very dramatic improvements in neurologic function. And if anyone has not seen that, please pay attention to that because it's one of the greatest things, as Clemens is saying, that we do as neurosurgeons. So I don't think uh, it's going to be a difficult question to answer, but we've been asking all the section chairs, if you're a neurosurgeon trying to pick a subspecialty, why should you choose to do CV or cerebrovascular surgery? Oh, thank you for that question. I mean, this is a, a great layup there in the sense that it is very easy. Um, you know, I think vascular has been over the last uh, couple of um, years, maybe last decade or so, 
the most exciting field in neurosurgery. Uh, we really come far, uh, both uh, from a scholarly perspective. You know, we turned a field that was a lot of times uh, based in you know case reports and and small series to something that is now on a regular basis publishing large randomized prospective trials, uh, raising the level of evidence um, to something that we want to see all across medicine. Uh, but also from a technical perspective, uh, we do have the ability to uh, use a lot of the you know gadgets that made us, I guess, uh, go into neurosurgery. Um, and it keeps coming, uh, both on the endovascular side, both on the open side. Uh, we are now exploring, for example, how endovascular robots are working. Um, so, you know, this is uh, something that has almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, but then really, I guess, what is the true North Star here is that I believe that this is a field where you truly, like you said, make a very tangible, immediate impact, positive impact on a lot of patients that you touch um, who are uh, very, very sick, very, very ill. Um, obviously, this is a field that is very uh, intertwined with neurocritical care also. Um, so I think the, the ability to change uh, and, and positively impact our patients on an everyday basis is uh, the most exciting part of this. Um, and you know, I think uh, a lot of people will, will see that and, and pursue that. Well, Dr. Shermer, we want to thank you so much for your time uh, coming on the show to share your experiences and share the exciting things that the CV section is offering for its members. Um, I know that anyone listening uh, must share at least a fraction of your excitement for cerebrovascular neurosurgery, and that should be more than enough to uh, keep the folks going into the field for generations to come. So thank you so much for joining us today on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thank you for having me.